I don't even know where to begin tonight, Mike. Um, the hour is nigh. Soon <laughs> you will ride to the west and conquer all the lands you see before you. Austin approaches. It does. That's uh, that's quite the intro, man. I mean, I, mean, I just, it's been a while, so I, I felt that I needed to, you know, really spice it up before. Well, I don't know what to expect, to be honest. Um, well, we got we got some stuff to talk about with uh, Thousand Sons. Uh, I've got an interesting conversation for us later. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, and, uh, yeah, we can talk a little bit about, like, what people have been bringing, actually. So maybe that's... Maybe we should start there and just kind of dig into, like, what what the heck is going on with Thousand Sons? We're, we're like, a month now a month maybe two months now uh into having the codex be out in the wild and people out there running them at tournaments Mm -hmm. people have Uh, gotten the lay of land gotten sort of figured out what they like and what they don't like yeah there were uh, some surprises with all that so why don't we get to the obvious stuff um what we've seen a lot of, uh, for better or for worse, is a lot of use of Contemptor Dreadnoughts. Yes. With Volkites, or b- better yes. known as the, the Volcon. Let me ask this, Mike. Why the heck is this thing so good? Well, ultimately it comes down to one thing. The core keyword. So the Volkite gun is pretty good. It's actually it's under cost. I think everyone would agree that it's undercosted compared to the other options. But the Contemptor Dreadnought is in that sweet spot where if you give it the Volkite guns, it's cheap enough to not be like prohibitively expensive. And it benefits from every core-related buff. So it can reroll ones, it can use the Ori, it can just use all... It's great. It's, it's a great option. Um, I think ultimately uh, the Contemptor Dreadnought, at least from a competitive sense, uh, overshadows every other ranged shooting, like heavy ranged shooting option in the Codex even, uh, just because of how much support you can put into it for the, the cost. I mean, there is the downside of it costing uh, CP, but CP is a lot more plentiful than it was previously, I found. Well, it seems like the the Contemptor is priced as if it doesn't have the keyword, but then it just magically has the keyword. Exactly. Um, at least my, my interpretation of it. Um, and the other thing is they're swingy. Because yep. it's sixes to wound that you're fishing for those extra mortal wounds just to do that Mm -hmm. extra damage. And on top of that, the damage is done in a way that you're just looking for failed saves no matter what the profile is. So where that gets really good is the worse your save is. So demons, for example, are really... It's really good against demons because you just want as many shots as possible. And with demons, they don't have armor so you're just going to their invuln save and it's and it's kind of what makes it good against dark elder uh, mm-hmm. because 
they don't tend to have very low armor saves on most of the stuff like Raiders and Venoms. Uh, you're yeah. just you're hitting that four up save, and even at the end of the day, let's say I get I don't know four four or five wounds through so that's two and a half three wounds on average or something like that that are going to get um that are going to get through just at a 50 percent save rate so that's like six wounds right there um and then your hope you're fishing for mortal wounds but on the flip side when your opponent rolls hot and actually rolls their saves really well volkites actually don't do very much Uh, they just kind of fizzle um and i've yeah. seen it multiple times where my opponents just kind of sit there and it's kind of like well their shooting just doesn't do anything at all um mm-hmm. and especially in situations where you you have minus one damage but i definitely get when you look at it you can take at least two or three of them take the elgrin's orrery relic uh put it on an exalted sorcerer so you're hitting on threes re-rolling ones wounding on whatever re-rolling ones um, and so you're fishing for those mortal wounds and that that's that's not bad and it's got a good profile to take down lots of raiders the problem is um with this list when when you go in on that and you basically design this kind of like firebase more or less um Joni, uh who i've had on on the podcast before basically ran into the problem with this, especially against Dark Eldar, where effectively they take the board and you have no way to take it back. Mm -hmm. Um, Your your stuff that will try to hold the board is going to get killed pretty quick. Um, And you're, you're left with kind of like this fire base that in essence, can just get kind of like trapped in your base. And that's kind of the shtick for Dark Eldar right now. Like if you look at most of the lists that have done good for Dark Eldar, they win not necessarily by killing you. Like no one is looking at Dark Eldar and going, oh man, they kill you like crazy. That's Adnek. Um, yeah. Dark Eldar basically just box you in. Um, like we've, we've seen Nathan Fennel with his list. He's done really good in the, in, in the Texas events. Um, and now Sean Naden's running a variation of Nathan's list. Um, and it's the same thing. It's just, it goes all in on a concept of, I'm just going to win in the movement phase on you. Um, and, and frankly, I don't, I don't think Thousand Sons have a way to beat that other than go first and take as much board as, the po- as possible and try not to die. I mean, what, what, what do you think? So... I think that's partially too accurate. The uh, big thing about Thousand Suns is we do have so, like, uh, there there've been games matches I've watched plenty, of, like especially I've seen games versus like Orc Muggies versus Dark Eldar, uh, being a sort of a, a good example, where yeah, the 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 Dark Eldar boxed them in, but those Orc Buggy lists usually have things to fly and so just flew past the wall of chaff and got to what was actually important, the units that were scoring points. Um, so where's the so for Thousand Suns though, the thing that we have going on is that we have multiple methods to infiltrate, deep strike, and redeploy units. 
And so a savvy opponent will obviously screen you off of the objectives. That's first turn. There's if they're if they're going first, there's no way you can prevent that. However, I I believe most Dark Elder lists would be hard pressed to bring enough board coverage to completely screen you out of everywhere useful. And so what I could see a savvy Thousand Suns player doing is redeploying units using duplicity, the dark what it used to be the dark matter crystal. Um and just effectively open up a second front uh through which to att- contest the board. Um <clears throat> Otherwise, Thousand Suns are just slow, and you'll never be able to contest the board otherwise. Yeah, so, I, I, I definitely think that's uh, yeah, that's the, the, that's kind of like your way. Like I look at it like you be aggressive versus them, because yeah. if they're if they're going in, especially a list that goes in on just move blocking, it has lots of venoms or it has lots of raiders. I, I think your goal is to be aggressive and take those movement, take their movement away from them, um, yeah. which is hard to do with how cheap their stuff is. They just have so much of it. But I think it's one of those things where the more you do turn one, the lo- the bigger your dividends are later in the game. Um, and it yeah. really, uh, one of the things I've really liked doing is taking the non winged demon prince and uh, you know effectively he can jump at any point around the board Um, Mm -hmm. and i can pretty much kit him out give him minus one damage um, give him maybe a nifty relic or maybe i take something like the uh, the chronos relic that lets me just pick a warlord trait during the game that i think i need Um, and then i can jump him i can do all sorts of stuff and and he's one model that's the great thing He's one model that you can go put somewhere and and effectively just go take that objective or go kill that um, that raider over there. And if they have stuff that gets out, you know, you, you have the control over. Do I, you know, do I keep them away from the incubi? Do I keep them away from Jazzar and those things? And that's usually easy to do. Um, and I think most. Dark Elder players are used to the fact that if they bring those things, those those are usually the first, like the raider that they're in is usually the first raider that's killed. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I think I think duplicity. Just kind of getting back on on context here, I think duplicity is definitely what's dominating right now. Um, we've yeah. seen, so we've seen some folks dabble with dual cult lists. Uh, we've seen some folks take cult of time lists um but outside of that i haven't seen anything really successful uh like at a major event um outside of duplicity uh joni's really been the one who's who's i think with thousand sons had the most success kind of at the top level um yeah and and he, has, mean, a, he has a great game actually if you go watch it, i think it's on the gw twitch page um he has a great game uh, against brad chester and unfortunately that game just kind of solidifies like my theory that you, you have to go in on your infantry and, and really play board control um, just yeah. to give yourself a fighting chance there. Yeah. I mean, the thing I've, I've noticed about where ninth edition has been going uh, in the last six months or so is that we're uh, 
moving away from people focusing on killing things like it was in 8th edition to now lists are focusing more on non-interactive board control. And so yeah, being able to redeploy at will with duplicity uh, is I, I think we knew it was going to be good, but we didn't realize how vital it was going to be. Um, which I think is why the Cult of Time list ultimately fell off, is that Cult of Time is all about killing things. And while you're killing stuff, you're not winning the right. game. Right. Right. It's in on, yeah, and what you mean by killing, you're, you're talking about um, like, hey, my demon prince gets back up. So it's it's about you know, either your stuff surviving or killing other stuff. It's about yeah. the combat aspect, not the board control movement aspect of the exactly. game. And yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. And I actually see a lot of people still in the, I don't, I don't think it's fair to call it the eighth edition mindset, but it's really the, the missions have changed in eighth edition. We typically played the, you know, competitively, we played the ITC missions and those were very kill oriented. So I think there's still some, some folks that, look at the um, they, they look at their lists and they look at how how can I kill like the admec problem or how can I survive yeah. the admec problem or how do I kill lots of raiders and things like that and you know I always feel like that's not the right question the right question is how do you score more points than those lists do um, and and when you look at dark elder for instance you, you have to play the board control game that that is yeah what it comes down to, you have to hold the objectives, especially um, like if you pair up with Dark Eldar against um, on the missions where it's, uh, you know, your primary is hold two, hold three, and I I forget what the third one is or hold more or whatever it is. Um, The one where you basically have to hold two instead of just holding one, you're at a massive, massive disadvantage just based on the numbers games that they have and the movement capabilities that they have. Um, that's, that's just a really tough matchup on, on those missions. Um, so I think you just, when you, when you think about your army, you think about scoring, like how are you going to score those points? Um, and, and what's really funny is the unit that has really stuck out. That's doing, (laughs) that's actually starting to now become like a staple in everybody's list is the freaking cultists again. Uh, yeah. because because they changed Weaver of Fates now, so it's a four-up involve. So, okay, cool. Here's my 150.30-man blob cultists or blob of cultists uh, with a four-up involve, uh, and, you know, your melee army has to go through them to get to me. And that's that, – it's fantastic. I mean, that's such a – it's a great use of them, um, and that's kind of – that's kind of the thing. Like you can go sit them on an objective. You can warp time them up. You can do whatever you want with them. Um, I'm pretty sure you can warp time them. It might be, I might be thinking they're, they're not arcana starties. I forget what it is. Um, but in any case, if I'm, if I'm misspeaking, I think you can warp time them, but I'm not looking up the rules right now. Um, but you can essentially get them onto an objective. And by doing that, you're ba- even though they're not objective secure or geez, are they objective secure? I think they are. I'm being an idiot right now. I can't. Oh, I feel like I should know this, but in any case, look, it's thirty bodies you have to chew through, whether they're obsec or not, whether you warp time them or not, 
and it's 150 points for him. Like the bottom line is they're incredible value that you throw an incredibly good buff on. Um, and all of a sudden that unit becomes great. There is a really good uh, question though, that comes up around this stuff. Um, and, and we've kind of talked about this a few times on our discord server is um, the notion that um, if you like when you're talking about balancing things in an army and you're talking about points and things like that, take cultists. Now, should cultists be balanced by what they do with their, um, with their data sheet alone? Or when you, t when you talk about something like this, where you can make them minus one to hit, you can give them a four up in uh, I, you can do all sorts of other stuff with them. Maybe, you know, increase the strength of their weapons, um, you know, give them reroll ones to hit. I, I, I don't know. You, you give them presage or something like that. So now they're hitting on threes and not fours or fives or whatever. Um, what, what it really gets down to is do you balance them based on what they're, what they're capable of getting buffed to? It's kind of like the admec problem where, you know, Rangers, when you look at them or, or uh, the Vanguard aren't like when you look at their profiles, they aren't in and of themselves a self-contained problem. It's, all the buffs that you start stacking on those guys that all of a sudden gets them to a point where they cross a threshold and it's like, wait, how many points does this unit cost? And look at what they're doing. Um, that's where the game gets kind of interesting. And that, like, how do you balance that? I mean, to uh, just throw the word in balance again, it's a balancing act. I mean, on paper, when you have a unit like that, you, it should be cheap enough points wise so that whenever you take it outside of the like buffing it to the nines it's still usable but expensive yeah. enough that it, you feel justified for taking it yeah I, mean, I think like the, our, the, the problem, like our scarabook like our scarabook yeah, cult yeah. terminators like a lot of people look at scarabook cult terminators i've had games where they they look at my 10 man blob of terminators they killed over the course of five turns they killed like three terminators and those terminators just absolutely like mulched whatever they wanted they went where they want they killed what they want they took what objectives they want they they're fearless like my opponent would sit there and go jesus those things are incredibly good and he's like, well, how many points is your squad? And I'm like, it's 415 points or whatever for the squad. And then with upgrades, you're, you're getting close to 450. It's like, oh, well, yeah, I would expect a 450 point unit to essentially, yeah. you know, that's what they would be doing, um, especially like Terminators or the, the elites of a legion, um, just like Dark Angel Terminator, same thing. Um, Except ours have fancy guns. And they just look better. But anyways, um, the, the, the thing is, is are you, are you, is it better to be in a situation where you are balancing the unit for, you know, like you said, what they do outside of all their buffs they have? Or is it essentially like, are you in a position where you have, I don't want to say failed, but maybe kind of missed the mark a little bit on what keywords they have or what buffs are allowed to be put on them where maybe it kind of was like in a vacuum where it was like, well, this buff on them is not a big deal. And this buff on them is not a big deal, but then, you know, Oh yeah. Well, what if you stack all those buffs on them at the same time? And maybe that's the kind of thing where, I mean, 
credit to the game designers in the in the Thousand Suns Codex, you see that they thought these things through. Like with the with temporal manipulation, you can't heal multiple units, so you you can't. Um, if something gets healed by another spell or a stratagem or something like that, like you can't stack that kind of stuff. And I kind of feel like it's, it's one of those things where maybe that didn't get the same level of thought and investment in it. You know, I, mean, I, it's a I don't know. Possibility. <laughs> I'm not saying, uh, I'm not saying they didn't do a good job. Uh, I think by far the ninth edition codexes so far have been, way better than what we've seen from 8th edition. So I think you have to make sure that we're looking at the big picture here. The game has been improving since what, like the end of 7th edition. Like we've been on this ever improving cycle of, you know, edition updates and, and codex updates and supplements and so on. Um, that I think mm-hmm. where we're at, it's easy to lose sight of the fact that the game is vastly improved and not every change they've made has been good. And that's okay. I think in the long run, as long as they keep refining that and fixing where they make a mistake and maybe, you know, it's kind of like, Hey, they introduce a new concept and that is something they have to iron out and and perfect a little bit more, the more codexes they rolled out. So I don't, I don't know what else to say on that topic. I know we've meandered a little bit off of the, you know, like what thousand sons have been taking kind of gotten into the balance area, but it, it all kind of, (laughs) it all kind of wraps up into like one. Yeah. It all, it's all kind of one big discussion, but um, I mean, talking about balance and what people are taking though. um, I think one thing we can say is thousand sons have retained their status as HQ, the codex. Uh, mostly in that our HQs are still just hands down the best part of the codex. Yeah. Um, like the, the thing, like Rubric Marines, Terra Terminators, we have all these good units, but the thing that really like polishes them to a, a shiny, shiny sheen is that we have all these buffs yeah. and ways to improve them or support them in whatever way. Or just murder things, because that's also an equally valid thing. Um, actually, I have to ask, because I haven't okay. left the house in like two months. <laughs> Did the Infernal Master wind up being the bee's knees that everyone thought it was going to be? I think it is, but somehow, amazingly, he's still under the radar. Like, I just, <laughs> I just saw a question on our, on, on, uh, our subreddit. Uh, today asking about almost the same question like how good is the infernal master um i'll say this every just about every competitive list has at least one of them Mm. and there are even now lists coming out that have two of them um and my synopsis of why he's so good uh is because he is the perfect efficiency of buffs and um the right amount of keywords and points to fit a very niche role of like jack of all trades. So first of all, the packs that he has are, there are so many of them that are useful. That is why people are starting to bring two. The ones I typically take are the reroll and the plus one to strength for, for uh, range weapons, mm-hmm. which is basically like a, it's almost like a staple if you're running 10 Terminators. Yeah. The other thing is, is he has one cast. So he's not something yeah. that you're loading up like 
take Aramon, for example. Aramon, you put in your list, a lot of folks are going to just load him up with buffs. And he is your reliable way of just getting the buffs that you need on what you need. The Infernal Master, for that matter, usually has like a utility spell. Yeah. And what's so great about that one cast is the fact that in most cases, you can just use him as an action monkey or a psychic action monkey. And he mm. doesn't need to do anything else. Like his whole thing can basically just be, um, I'm casting mutate on this objective or uh, he's warp timed himself up into the middle uh, and he's going to psychic ritual in the middle of the board. Um, just depends mm. on how you're playing. Like he is one of the, the units that you rely on just executing those actions with uh, that you don't have to do with other units. Um, you don't have to use your rubric squad or, or something like that. Like those guys can actually go smite or do whatever they need to do. Um, so I think at the end of the day, that's, that's kind of the combination of everything that has kind of made him so good. And then just, you know, toss the icing on there that he's 90 points. Um, it's mm. just kind of one of those things where um, you have a way to just ensure that you have a reroll no matter what. Um, like for instance, um, if I know I'm going to jump my terminators or I'd have them coming in from deep strike, or I have something coming in and I need to make a nine inch charge. The real significant difference between eighth edition and ninth edition is that we don't have the support for rerolls that we had in eighth edition. We had eight inch charging Zangors that we could give a reroll to the charge with gaze of fate. Uh, well, gaze of fate is gone now. Um, and yeah. the only way to get close to that now is with the reroll pact that you get off your Inferno Master. So I think in turns where you know you're going to jump your Terminator to another side, of, or your Terminators to the other side of the board or some other spot, and you know you're going to need to make a nine-inch charge, you got to have that in your back pocket. Um, and you know that that stacks with the CP reroll where. You know, if you've got something else that needs to do that, you've got an additional reroll in your back pocket. Um, not that mm -hmm. you can reroll it twice, obviously. But the the whole point is that it your your infernal master gives you a chance to get a reroll for free, and I I think that's really underrated how good that is when you can just use it anywhere. Um, nobody else really has that kind of ability in the game. Even the CP reroll is very very limited, so. Either, hey, your demon prince is low and he's close to dying and you've got to make some critical saves. There's a good example of you, you want to have that thing in your back pocket. Um, and it really just kind of, he really just adds so much utility to the army that that, in my opinion, is kind of why everybody takes them is that you're never going to be just facing the worst scenario every time. Like you're going to go into some games and you might be facing orcs or you might be facing world eaters or, you know, whoever. Every situation is going to be different. And, you know, especially in situations like tournaments where you've got to have options for those different games. He is one of the best, like, utility knights to do all sorts of different things. So I would say definitely he has become, um, his rules are fantastic. He's not overpowered. Uh, there's nobody saying you just you, you get too much that's too good. He's just a very well designed unit. His rules are great. He looks great. Um, you know, we we kind of like got a win win here. So, yeah. Let's see. Well, on the uh, there are a couple other things here. So, um, 
while we're on the topic of like what's going on with Thousand Sons, so I've got a challenging question for you, Mike. I want to see what your take is. So the I, the community of folks have not really been able to coalesce around an answer on this. So <laughs> there is a list by a notorious player uh, that pushes the envelope with his with his list sometimes. Um, this on, is a um, Thousand Sons list. Uh, it is a Thousand Sons list. And one of the things that he did that was interesting, well, it's not purely Thousand Sons. So he took a Death Guard detachment and he took Thousand Sons. Ooh, yes. Okay. So let's lay a few things out here for context. So first of all, the Warlord in his, in his army was a Foul Blight Spawn. It was not a Thousand Sons Warlord. All right. Okay. Now, he had an exalted sorcerer that he used the dilettante upgrade on to take a relic. Here's the interesting thing here. So dilettante says you can take an additional relic and you can even give an additional relic if, even if you already have one. But yes. it has to be a relic that they have access to. Correct. Now, what relics does he have access to is the question. So does that mean that he can just go take a relic even if there's no Thousand Sons Warlord in your army? And that is important because when you look at the top page or the requirements for the Sorceress Arcana in the book, it says that if your, uh, if your army is led by a Thousand Sons Warlord, then you can take one of the relics in that section. So it's a tricky one. Um, does he does he actually have the ability to take a relic like um, like the dark matter crystal, for instance, or Elgonzori? Um, I mean, by using dilettante, if your warlord is actually from some other army, I'm gonna go with a yes. He can take a eight thousand suns relic. Okay, because I believe so. We're going off of intent. Here. Mm-hmm. When it says with dilettante, you may take uh, a relic that you have or would normally have access to. That's more referring to a relic that a exalted sorcerer would have access to, because there are some relics that are like infernal master only. Mm-hmm. Um, plus, we do have precedent in the um, stratagems that allow you to get extra relics. Though those assume that you already have your warlord as a thousand suns warlord. And I think that's kind of the counter argument there in that the section for the relics require you to actually have your, like to, to have access to those relics, you have to have a thousand suns warlord or, hmm. or a thousand suns character be your warlord. And that's kind of the weird the word catch 22 here and that the, the dilettante upgrade, the, the upgrades for units, obviously don't require that. They just require a thousand suns detachment. Um, mm. But it's the, it's kind of like, does this give you a backdoor method into those relics? Like is the intent with the wording around the relics that, Hey, your warlord has to be a thousand suns warlord. And there's more precedence for that because when you look at the cults, for example, uh, in order to take, I, th- I think, the relics from the cults, you have to have your warlord be from that great cult. 
Uh, and the only way to get around that is to take Magnus as your warlord, because then that lets you take uh, relics from those other cults. Mm. Um, it's kind of like a, a, a like a guesting in kind of thing. So it's kind of like one of those sneaky little, like that's interesting things of maybe that's an advantage to taking Magnus is you can take two great cult relics, but yeah. You know, that's, I mean, I'm not sure what the intent is there. And that kind of shows where we got to kind of an interesting thing uh, or, or sure. a situation where we, we couldn't quite come up with an answer on that. Yeah. I mean, honestly, that sounds like a really good FAQ from. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that would be, that would be really helpful. So, uh, so we had, so we had a few other things here. Um, we, we've talked about where Thousand Suns are so far um, and maybe just kind of rounding that out. Are there, are there other things with what the army is doing right now that we can really get into other than just talking about kind of what we're seeing? So I saw some mad lad like psychos taking Zengor Enlightened with chainswords. What was that about? I don't know. Or something like that. Mudlin uh, Spears. Was uh, so there, I thought it was kind of weird. It's like, that doesn't sound useful. <laughs> no, there really isn't a lot of reasons to take chain swords and pistols on your, on your Zangors, especially with Zangor Enlightened. Um, you yeah. know, the, I've seen folks use Enlightened in three-man squads because they are quick. They can get warp-timed. Um, you can get something out onto an objective and they can go, you know, um, I think they can do certain... Um, certain uh, secondaries, sure. uh, but I'm not. I'm not sure which ones it is. I, I'm pretty sure they can't do raised banners because that's infantry. But yeah, you know, in any case, that, that's kind of what they do. Is like go out there and take that objective over there, and and yeah. having you know a three man unit for what sure 60, like 60 70 points. Some odd yeah. points. Yeah. yeah, but I think yeah. the chaos spawns are kind of like the bigger thing. Um, a yeah. five-man unit of chaos spawns, I think, is also kind of one of those sneaky staples you see in a lot of the uh, a lot of the lists now, because uh, they have such good support. And in Thousand Suns, they're just they're monsters. Um, I had a I had a Cray Knights player um, drop a strike squad in behind behind my lines, and then I was outflanking my chaos spawn, and so he was in my deployment zone, and the chaos spawn basically just got to come in right in. Uh, right within engagement range of the stuff in my deployment zone, um, right at the very back backfield edge, essentially. And it was kind of like, yeah, so this is going to hurt. And so I was like, yeah, so each of them is what two d three attacks, and oh look, I got the I got the AP four bonus, and uh, so it's so it's kind of ridiculous because you know you're rerolling all the attack or your your um, not re-rolling the attacks. You're you're getting like something like I don't know, like fifteen attacks or whatever it was, and um, you know, even hitting on fours, you end up with something like seven or eight wounds at AP four, two damage. You know, it's just kind of like all right, bye bye, strike squad. You know, hmm. they they're gone, um, and it just kind of um, you know the the fact that they are very very killy, but they're they're a total glass cannon. But but it's like what a hundred points, hundred and. 10 115 points for a squad of five which is perfect because then you're not you're not bumping up against like blast issues or anything like that uh, but i definitely think outflanking them is really good and and on that topic 
Um, I've had really good success with the Mutalith Vortex Beast actually outflanking him. Um, and what's so great about that is the same way I just described how I use my Chaos Bond, especially against Grey Knights where they like to be able to jump their stuff into your deployment zone. Um, it gives you kind of a counter that they can't do anything about. Like you just instantly, like a lot of people forget about the fact that if you overextend and come into my deployment zone and I've got something in strategic reserves, even on turn two, like as long as it's on my battlefield edge, I can come in within engagement range. Um, yeah. or within nine inches essentially and, and get my charge down to say maybe like three inches or something dumb like that. Um, and you're just basically giving whatever unit you just put there away. And since everything in my list is like a monster or infantry for the most part, aside from this chaos spawn, I can just jump them away afterwards. And so I'm not, I'm not really limited by putting them there. I'm just not exposing them to all this, you know, threat or, or, or being taken out by shots or things like that you know, during the course of the game. So it's kind of like a, um, it's kind of like a counterpunch that you keep in your back pocket in case they decide to extend themselves that way. <laughs> so, um, I, I, you know, on the other units, I, rubrics are, rubrics are pretty good. They're, they're pretty much a staple in every army from what I've seen. Uh, there, yep. there is some mad lad, I think down in Australia, if I remember right, that was running something like, 40 or 50 rubric marines uh which was you know hats off to you that that was awesome. awesome um i think there's a place for rhinos right now too uh mainly against things like jukari and and other yeah. other armies because what's great is you get into a trade war rhinos are a great piece to be trying to trade away uh to protect your um uh, rubric marines i've had mm -hmm. plenty plenty of situations where I park my rhino on an objective and my opponent comes running in and is just like, ah, I'm going to murder your rhino. And with my nemesis, you know, nemesis dread knight and it comes in and I'm like, Oh no, don't do that. And it's like, great. Now my rubric Marines are out after the fight phase and I have the objective. So, yes. you know, it's kind of like you, you have all sorts of tricks like that. Plus, you can even sneak a little uh, Melta on there so you can advance the Rhino up. And in a lot of cases, there's stuff that's minus one to hit. So if you're going to be minus one to hit anyways, like planes and th or aircraft and stuff, like yeah, just advance up, get within six inches and, you know, just hope you hope you roll good and, you know, take a pop shot with it. But, you know, stuff like that is really good. And, you know, I, I haven't used it a lot, but I like to remember that I've got warp, warp plane gargoyles in, in the back pocket when, uh, you know, I've got a bunch of infantry or something around me. You can, you can potentially do a bunch of more wounds with it. Um, but <laughs> yeah, I mean, aside from that, Helldrakes are kind of disappointing. Um, I yeah. think a lot of us thought they were going to be better, but they just, they don't do very much. I mean, that's kind of the problem. And they're what 165 points and, you know, you compare it to like the Admech flyers the problem is, is, you know, your aircraft has to be able to charge. Like it needs some kind of rule to be able to just say, okay, I can move at the speed with supersonic, but then I can charge, um, you know, I should be able to charge over stuff or, you know, get within one or something like that, where I can, I can charge into something and not have to worry about getting like counterattacked essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and I think I think that's kind of the weird thing with aircraft right now is they've got they've they don't know quite what to do with them. Um, 
you know, our friend Eric actually had a, had a really good suggestion to go back to the original aircraft rules when they first came out where they're not actually on the board and they just basically, they, they do kind of like strafing runs across the battlefield and, you know, you essentially have like a firing arc or a, you know, a way to basically say whether you could shoot at them or not. That's relatively easy to figure out. Um, and I kind of thought, you know, that makes a lot more sense for aircraft. Like I shouldn't have my aircraft charging, like on the battlefield, charging things, um, unless it's a Helldrake or something like that, which is special, right? Because the Helldrake has always yeah. been something that is kind of this hybrid. It It's an aircraft, but then it also gets on the ground and beats the crap out of stuff. You know, it kind of kind of plays a dual role there where, so I could see exceptions, but, you know, stuff like the Admech flyers, the Orc flyers, things like that, you know, <laughs> the, the yeah. ability to basically just line them up in front of your army and block a charge still exists. And that's a problem in my opinion, like an aircraft should I, not be affecting that at all. It just means yeah. they don't, in my opinion, they just don't have the rules right for them yet. So. Mm -hmm. so I mean, I, I would not like to go back to, the sixth edition rules for aircraft because those are terrible. Were they? Were those oh. the first rules that came out? Well, so, sort of. They're the first rules that were in regular 40k. Apocalypse had rules for aircraft, but and they were kind of janky. Um, but I never actually got to play with those rules. The fact that by the time I they actually made models for most of the aircraft that weren't Forge World. They had retired those. Um, well, how did do you remember how it terrible. worked for fourth edition, like the APOC rules? Uh, maybe that's it. So essentially, so, the way he he described, I didn't I didn't spend the time, you know, and I apologize here, but I didn't spend the time to actually go look up look these rules up. I I don't know yeah. where some so, obscure place has it referenced, but. The way it was explained is essentially they, they sit on the side of the battlefield, essentially. So, like, they sit off the table. So they never have, like, stands where they're, like, on the battlefield somewhere. And so they can make these kind of, like, strafing runs across the table. And, you know, you mark where they go, and then you have the ability to say, okay, if you can, if you can shoot within, what, like, 12 inches of that or something like that, you can shoot. Yeah, so the way I recall is that they... You had, the models were on the battlefield, however, they didn't actually take up space, and so if models could like move underneath them and like if the mob the a model is standing on their their base, you would mm -hmm. just move the aircraft out of the way temporarily um, but like aircraft were like high up in the air, so you subtracted twelve inches from all of the range of your guns and you mm -hmm. only hit them on sixes, but if you had like special types of guns you did ignore those rules it, it was a whole big thing mm -hmm. uh I, I mean i think that going to a more thematic use for the aircraft would be nice but the problem is they've already sort of invested so heavily in all of its flyers does it does the issue get fixed if you just allow stuff to end within one inch of an aircraft I mean, you can still... You can, uh, you can move with... So the catch is... So what they changed, you can move... You can make a charge within one inch, meaning you can charge over their base. You can move within one inch of their base. 
but what they said you can't do is end with an engagement range of that. And I yeah. feel like the only way they, the, 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 I feel like they kind of left the fix out of the equation is they should just let you end up within one inch, but unless you fly, you can't attack the flyer or the aircraft. Yeah, that might help. You, you could still bubble wrap with flyers that way, but it, it would at least potentially help a little bit. It'd be harder to do it. Yeah, it means I can't like line them up out in front of my army, more or less, yeah. and just say, you know, okay, you can't get to the stuff behind it. I could still, because of the shape of the bases, more or less, I could get to the stuff behind there. But, yeah, you know, I, I think it's still kind of a problem in that, that I'm not sure they have a solution for that yet with the rules where, you know, that that shouldn't be happening. You should be able to charge that army as if, you know, some aircraft, you know, 500 feet up in the air isn't able to, you know, block my charge. It's ridiculous. Yeah, I think that that's a weird abstraction of the rules that uh, probably they should have reexamined that. Yeah. Well, we've... Um, I think we've probably covered all the existing stuff here to death. Uh, but I had an interesting thing for us to kind of dig into a little bit. Um, and I'll, I'll let you kind of run with the opener here. Uh, but here's the seed for this thing. The, what I've been noticing is that there is, it's not quite clear what people consider competitive and not <laughs> Sure. When it comes to 40K. Um, so here's, so there's a really interesting thing I notice with a lot of players in that they naturally want to come get their answers to how certain things work, rules, questions, things like that um, from competitive players. Just naturally they go to a competitive channel or someplace where people are playing competitive for that. Now, I... I don't know what to draw, what conclusion to draw from that. I just, that's an observed behavior that I've seen with our community and that pe that's mm -hmm. where people just tend to end up going. Um, sure. That aside, what would you consider competitive when it comes to playing 40K? Like where, how do you define that? So I would say that that mostly comes down to semantics and how you want to define it. Uh, so Games Workshop has a framework of what they consider to be casual play versus competitive play, as an example. So open play, which I don't think I've ever seen anyone do, and narrative play, which includes things like Crusade, are casual. Generally, if you're playing those two formats, you're just... You're here, you have your army, you're going to roll some dice. You generally want to like forge a narrative and things shouldn't, if both people are there for the, sort of the same reason, uh, get too well, competitive. Uh, back to the origin here to have a good time. Obviously that doesn't work because humans tend to just want to win, but that's, that's just another hero. Whereas competitive, as defined by 40K, would be matched play. Uh, either the Eternal War missions or the new... Um, what are the, the new mission packs called? Anyways, the... The GT mission pack. The GT mission pack, uh, which 
it's a very sort of cut and dry way to do it, but I don't think is actually a good answer. Because if I, I think that the real answer of sort of what that is is comes down to what your intention is for playing. So uh, I guess a, a good example is obviously most people would say that if you're going to an event like a tournament, uh, regardless of the size, you're going there to be competitive. However, that's often not true. Um, what you'll find is there will be the people at the top 20% of tables that are they're there to win the tournament. Like that is their goal. They're here to win. They will do whatever it takes, barring cheating, usually, to make sure that they come out on top of any game they play. So that'll include just being a right bastard about the game. Not necessarily in a malicious sense, just any advantage that they can squeeze out, they're going to do it. They'll go for the jugular every time. Uh, so I think when most people think of competitive players, that's what they're thinking of. Um, obviously, I don't think most tournament players consider that to be true, but we're getting to that. Then the bottom 20% of people, they're here because they just want to play some 40K. Like they don't care if they win or lose. They're just they're here to move some little painted guys around, roll some dice, meet, like hang out with people, have fun. Um, obviously, under different circumstances, you might call those guys casual players. So we've got 20%, we've got 20%, so that leaves us with our 60% remaining. Who are these people? They are the guys that they have, or girls, who have played enough 40k that they feel comfortable going to an event uh, that they can feel pretty comfortable knowing that they're going to run into some pretty mean lists. And if they win the majority of the games, they'll walk away generally in a pretty good mood. I would frankly put the two of us in that category most of the time. I would agree. I think it comes from our agreeable nature. Uh and so the question is, are those guys competitive players? And I think the answer ultimately comes down to the reason why they're playing the game. So I would actually paint you as a competitive player. Um, it, effectively, the you, you play the game with the constant need to uh, for improvement, looking for ways to up your game, sort of find out what works, what doesn't work. You're always trying to find the next thing that will work for you as a player. Whereas I consider myself a casual player. And that determination, despite my history with the game and my skill and my ability to trounce noobs as far as the eye can see, comes from the fact that I buy units based entirely upon my feelings about those units. I'm not necessarily putting together a list with the idea every time to, it's like, okay, yeah, I need to buy three of these, four of these, put these things together, and I can do this X, Y, and Z. Instead, so you basically are saying you open the closet to your to your units, and you see that Mollerfiend, you're like, you're looking ravishing today. Exactly. I'm bringing you. 
And so the the experience there is different because effectively what we will find out of a somebody who wants to be competitive is they'll fire and forget. So like a, for one season, they'll play this army. Like this is my army for a season. And then at the end of the season, the, co- the meta has changed, the codex has changed, and now there's that determination. Is this army I'm playing still like my army? Like the army I'm going to play in the next season. And that's why you see codex churn, where the competitive player will just freely sort of resell the old army, buy the new army, and then that's, that's their life cycle. Obviously, you are deeply invested in Thousand Sons, so that's not necessarily 100% true all the time. But you have to admit, you do have a lot of arts at this point. Um, yeah. And I mean, I, I do as well, but all of my armies are all from a, collect, a collecting the models perspective. And then I play with my collection. Um, yeah, that's a good so, question. I wonder what the percentage of people are, like, even if you're competitive or non-competitive, that mm-hmm. you actually own more than one army. Like, if you really become invested in 40K, I feel like almost all of us get to a point where we, we just say, look, I need, I need some kind of change of pace or I need some kind yeah. of like different tone of what I'm doing to, to, to keep myself interested in the game where, you know, you, you know, two years ago, I ran thousand suns for the, the entire year nonstop in a very dis um, or, or not advantageous um, rule set for them. And it burned me out. Yeah. So, and I can't imagine I'm the only one that's gone through that kind of thing with their army. So, oh no, definitely. You know, it's interesting what you what you say about owning multiple armies. There, or at least jumping from armies, and I think there definitely is a sense that, um, you know, each each player probably has to kind of find almost like find themselves with the game and what they really get out of it. Like I think. I think there's a lot of people that have fun playing the game, but they don't really know why they have fun playing the game. Um, yeah. Like there's, there's certain things they like about it. And then there's, you know, the, they might be someone who just finds themselves complaining about certain things or just not liking a certain aspect about the game a lot. But I think at the end of the day, if they keep playing it, well, there's something there that keeps them coming back and keeps them playing the game. Um, and that's, that's kind of what I mean is like, being able to define that, like if you can sit down and write down or at least, you know, concisely speak to what you really get out of the game, um, you know, whether it's competitive or not, I feel like you have a much better understanding of, um, you know, like, why are you playing the game and why, you know, why are you even there doing it? I know there's a lot of people just as you were mentioning, that go to a, go to tournaments and, the thing they get out of it is actually just hanging out with their friends. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's one of the big things. Um, you know, when COVID hit, that was, that was ironically one of the things that happened to a lot of us is, you know, a lot of us were just saying, man, I, I actually, I don't miss the tournaments as much as I miss going out after the tournaments to get food and hang out and just, you know, talk about how bad the games went, you know, or oh, like, yeah. man, how bad I played or I lost really bad or whatever. Um, so, the 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 interesting thing is there there's no it doesn't seem like there's a format like you can't yeah you can't say that i don't know because you play the game this way it's not competitive cuz i i no. definitely think you could play crusade competitively 
Oh, yeah, sure. You could uh, make main, that case, right? Oh, yeah. So the main thing is why you're there to play. Yeah. So we had a, an issue uh, at one of my uh, events I was running. I was running that narrative uh, sort of kill team event. Uh, the, the last thing that I ran at the the uh, Games Workshop store, where we had some people that were nominally there to just roll the dice and have fun. Yeah. Because um, it's, it's it was a dumb throwaway kill team thing. Literally, as I recall, we were literally waiting for like the next edition to come out. There was nothing to do. Yeah. Just, hey guys, while we're here, let's just roll some dice and bullshit. Um, and then there were other people there that they were there to like drive their enemies before them, hear the lamentations of their women. It's just like, okay. And ultimately what we want to run into is that anytime the, 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 what I would call like the true, like narrative casual players ran into the other player, the, the casual player just, have a terrible time and ultimately like, like I feel kind of bad because I'm running the event and then well the competitive guy he's snowballing and like what am I going to do about this and yeah I remember uh, that yeah and it's really what the, the big takeaway from it is that much like when looking at game rules you have um, sort of rules as written versus rules as intended. My event was intended to be a fun narrative event. But because of the way that I wrote the rule set for the narrative, there were just some times where the rules worked out in the favor of the person who just like bent and stretched the rules within the context of what we were playing. And if I had done a better job sort of managing the event perhaps we that everyone could have had a better time of it mm. but ultimately like we all have day jobs and there's only so much time i can spend at a store uh and so it just didn't work out that way um and so i think as with most things it comes down to it's, it's a spectrum of like so for instance for me i would say i am a competitive casual player and that the I prefer a casual game. I, I love a garage hammer where me and some buddies we get together on like a, a Thursday night or something. We put down whatever garbage aquarium terrain we can put down on a table. We play some dice. We make up some dumb narrative of like, oh yeah, this is what's going on this week. And regardless of who wins or loses, we're all gonna have a great time and um, just we're here to hang out friends you could easily replace 40k in that context with magic the gathering D, any other game that we normally play it's just we decided to play 40k that night the problem that comes in for me and something that took me years to sort of identify and grapple with is i'm a conniving bastard <laughs> and so <laughs> I, I, I actually it's the reason why i can't go to gts is I'll play a game or I'll play three games or whatever. And then I'll spend the next 24, 48 hours just 
combing over every little thing that happened, looking for every little rules interaction, every possible thing. It's like, okay, and now I'm going to refine what I did that game and move forward. And like, I, so I, I started off as an older player. Um, way back in the day. I, I love Craft World well, That's part of the problem right there. But I have like 20,000 points worth of Craft World Eldar. <laughs> it's a huge problem. Uh, and I was asked, like, we are going to break up the group if you keep playing that godforsaken army. <laughs> because what would happen is we play 2v2 every week, and it didn't matter who I was teamed up with, I was going to win. And not because I was being mean about it, it's just like I'd gotten so adept with the army. This is like okay, and I do this, do this, and like by the time I'm done with turn three, my both of my opponents' armies are dead. It's like uh, I'm sorry. And so I, I picked up Tau and I picked up Guard, and I went. Through. Now I have my rear army in the game. It feels like, um, but ultimately that need to perfect any skill I pick up leaves me in a, a, a very awkward spot where I enjoy this thing, but I really ought to be doing this other thing in terms of skill level. Uh, and I don't know. Uh, that, it's just one of those, those things where I, I'm not... My mentality is over here, but my skill set's over here. It's like my, there's yeah, I was gonna, the two shall never meet. I was going to say because you, when you said you're a conniving bastard, I, I I can't really think of a better way to put it because it's kind of like you you can be a casual player but have such a good grasp of the rules that even someone else who's playing you casually there's it doesn't mean you're a bad player if you're a casual player, right? Yeah. Yeah, um, you're still a really good player. And I think what I, the way I kind of, from an outsider looking in, see how you play at a lot of the GTs is you take very quote unquote bad designed lists or <laughs> you take very bad armies and you're kind of like, I'm going to beat someone with this army. And, you know, at the end of the day, I'm going to say, I won, I won that match versus that guy. I can't think of anything better than the matchup at LVO you had when you brought your chaos space marine renegades that could advance a charge and you matched up with tyranids and no, it was tell or no i thought it was the tyranid player and you were charging a tower tyranids or something like that you're charging turn one or turn two mm-hmm. or something like that and they're kind of like wait a second i'm the one that does the charging here and you just you just Proceeded yeah, to yeah. just so, run uh, over the entire army. Tyranids, that was uh, that was Austin that year. But yeah, yeah, yeah. No, this... It's it's the example I think of is that. Match. Oh yeah. I'm sorry, I got it confused with LVO, but yeah, it's that match where you know no, you're you get the fun <laughs> out of the fact that no one saw a Chaos Space Marine list that advanced and charged. You know, like no. Hell, it seemed like that one event at Austin, that must have been the same event that you faced um, our buddy in Dallas who had his knights. And you basically dumped your army into the knights and a knight blew up and it destroyed your entire My army. My entire army. Yeah. One. And you yeah. were done and you your game Less was over. Like 45 minutes. It was great. <laughs> and you're at my table and it was kind of like, but you probably had more fun in that game 
uh, and remembering that game than I probably had with that same game. Like I can't even remember, to be honest, what game I was playing at that time. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I think it, you know, not to, not to come back to like a grim uh, tone on this thing, but um, you know, there was, there's somebody that we know that, that plays this and he had a, he had an interesting theory. He's been playing 40 K for a very long time. He's a, he's a, in the Houston area is a very well-known uh, 40k player. Um, and he and I had a conversation and he, he actually has been out of 40k for a while. He hasn't been playing. And one of the things in my conversations with him that he brought up that was really interesting is he noticed that right around the time that they made the change to support faction kind of like in ITC, you can, you can basically play your, like if I take Thousand Suns to a bunch of tournaments, I'm scoring my points at each tournament for Thousand Suns. And mm-hmm. so ITC then takes my X best scores with Thousand Suns and they rank the Thousand Suns players based on who has done the best with Thousand Suns. And, it, and around the time they started to roll that breakdown out, what he noticed think it was in san antonio was one of the events he was at and what he noticed was that he's he was at having a decent tournament he was doing okay but there were people on the tables right next to him and they were nowhere near contention for like the overall win or anything like that but it was like these two were just you know like really getting at each other over every little thing and what he realized was that it was because the points that they were both trying to get were for their faction. And it was one of those things where it was, you know, now what would have been before just a fun game now is something where it was like, Hey, I'm fighting for this overall season score for my, you know, for my faction. And it's like every Mm -hmm. single game counts and it put them into positions where it like stressed them out and, and like got them to a point where, they actually started, you know, arguing and, you know, on and on all the things that we just kind of like have these trope or these stereotypes or tropes or whatever about yeah. competitive 40 K. And it, mm-hmm. it just kind of like dawned on me, you know, looking at that and thinking, you know, the more I've thought about that, the more I kind of feel like there, there might be some truth to that. Um, and there might, there might be a case that you could make in that the fact that, you know, if, if you were to suddenly take away like season scores and things like that, like would that all of a sudden just make a lot of the games a lot more casual and a lot more, you know, less stressful? So I'm inclined to agree um, with that assessment, to be honest. Uh, so the, my first tournaments were before ITC really became big. And it, the only time I ever ran into any trouble in terms of like my opponent doing sort of being argumentative or the sort of not being fun to play against was that whenever was only whenever I was on the top tables. Um, otherwise, it was like had a great time throughout, even like win or lose. It's like, hey, we're just we're here to play 40k, and they did like faction medals for those events, but it was just, just for that event. And one of the things I think you also saw 
is people just played what they wanted to play. Uh, because there was none of this, well, I like playing Dark Eldar, but all the best players play Dark Eldar, so I'll play this other army instead because there aren't as many good players playing that army. Um, but sometime at, around the time that they really like started pushing the seasonal scores for your faction, uh, I, I do think there there was a change in like the the year where you pushed Thousand Suns really hard. Um, I, I recall that, and you, your your goal was like I'm going to be like top Thousand Suns player for the year. And at the end of it, you were so burned out, you switched to like World Eaters. Like as far from Thousand oh, Suns, even worse than that. Get. Even worse than that, I played Space Marines. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Uh, so, I, while I do agree, I think the cat's out of the bag on that one. Like yeah. Once you let it loose, there's no going back mm-hmm. on that type of thing. Because if ITC stopped doing it, then, well, somebody else would start keeping track. Um, and, so, and so that, I mean, not, that gets into kind of like, well, how do they do... How, what's the right way to do scoring? And I've had I've had folks really big on trying to introduce Elo to um, uh, to forty k. And you know, if you don't know what Elo is, it's a it's a stat system for profiles for players that you know based on how good you are and who you beat and you know whether you beat a ranked player. You know, essentially, it's kind of like a, a global ranking system essentially that that carries over year to year. And you know, you essentially who you play and what your you know who you beat essentially changes whether you gain points or your rank goes up or or down or whatever. They use it in chess. They yeah. use the same math formula, I think, in a lot of the MOBAs, um, yeah, like League of Legends and stuff. Yeah, like that's that. exactly but, what comes to mind there. Yeah, um, but there's but there's issues with it, right? You know, yeah. you have you, you have like problem. Well, yeah, and you also have Elo Hell, which is where you know you're in a situation where um, you know, let's take Houston for example. Um, you know, unless I'm playing people that are ranked higher than me, then, you know, by the formula of it, there isn't really a way for me to gain significant ground or rank up significantly. Like I can, I can chip away points here and there, but you know, if I pick like, you know, if you're unranked or, or you're lowly ranked um, just because you don't care and you and I decide to play a game and, you know, that game gets recorded, like you and I match up at a tournament or something like that. It's like, well, now all of a sudden, if, if you beat me, um, my rank gets all messed up. And I, I feel like the, the fundamental thing that we just talked about doesn't get solved in that mm-hmm. the, the goal should be to have a good time and have fun. And there's, I don't think there's ever going to be a system that solves, um, you know, a, like a ranking system that solves it in a way that makes it um, so that you're not, I guess it's like if you're at a tournament and it's like day two and you're what, like, you know, three and two or something like that, you're playing your last game. Like I, I would hope that that's your best game of the tournament and not unenjoyable and not something that you have to really, you know, that you get into, into a really tense game or anything like that. Like I feel like, I feel like as long as the rules don't push you to feel like you have to play, flat out you know as best as you can and score as many points as you can every single game um you know uh, 
I, I feel like that's that's kind of the that's kind of the conundrum there. Like, yeah. I mean, I think the only way to sort of take the pressure off of people at tournaments to like play as good as they can possibly play would be to reduce the stakes. Yeah. Um, the the problem with that, of course, is well, we've gotten as a community, 40k has gotten so used to having large organized play that we have these governing bodies uh, and I mean, mm-hmm. even Games Workshop starting to get involved in the egg themselves again now as well uh, that even if you dismantled the system that sort of applies this external pressure to play at top like performance all the time you would just see somebody else replace it um, Can't you introduce no. like your your sportsmanship or something like that into the equation no. somehow? To... So that's the problem. So this thing, sportsmanship. I, I like sportsmanship in theory. I think at the end of a tournament, the like having a prize of like, oh yeah, and the guy with the best sportsmanship gets a a free army or whatever is great because having a sportsmanship score allows you to with a positive incentive um, encourages people to play civilly. Um, the real difficulty though with doing like for instance uh, a sportsmanship score as part of your points or more importantly a sportsmanship as like a rule code of conduct is that those systems are almost always applied with negative like results. So for instance, the code of conduct. There's no reward for obeying the code of conduct. It's literally just, well, you weren't mean to your opponent, so you <laughs> get to have your, your score. Uh, whereas if you had like, oh yeah, and if your opponent gives you like a checkbox of like, he was fun to play against. Well, then that's applied for your towards your like. At the end of the event, you have the odds of getting yeah some thing unrelated to your points. Because or you problem... end up you you end up where people just you know if it was the kind of thing like hey we had a we had a sportsmanship survey even at, at the end of each game you'd eventually get to a point where players just check yeah you know you know okay, 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 for every player and they give them the best, they just kind of autopilot it and it it never really kind of self-enforces it where, you know, yeah, I can kind of, I can understand where you're going with that. I I would almost think that what you would do is something like best sport um, would would not get ingrained into your points, but more kind of like um, everybody has like a best sport rating um, Mm -hmm. and you know, your, your lowest ranked, it it kind of goes inverse. Like, um, you know, your sportsmanship score, uh, your tiebreaker on that is kind of like how low you're, how bad you're doing. Like if you're doing really bad, but yet you remain a very good sport the whole time, like that, that's the kind of thing that's pretty cool. And it kind of rewards that. But I, I feel like at the end of the day, you still, you still run into the trap where it's like those rewards are so extreme that the people in the middle is where a lot of the issues are and not sure. at, not necessarily at the top or the bottom. It's like, it's in the middle of these tournaments that it is where like all the troublemakers are. And the problem is that the incentive is gone. 
in either case. Like my incentive to be a good sport because I'm doing really good and there's visibility on me is gone. And I can't win a sportsmanship award because I've, you know, I've already done better than these guys at the bottom. And so it's kind of like that incentive, that, that incentive to like encourage you to be like, Hey, look, you know, make sure you're having fun make sure you're making sure your opponents are having fun, that kind of thing. Like there's Mm. nothing there to really reinforce that. And I feel like if we can solve that, we can solve, you know, that, that problem of people just kind of losing it. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I I think that the sort of circling back to the original thing uh, compared to the 40 K is a, sort of a nuanced thing um you the uh, main thing being that just because somebody plays competitively doesn't mean that they want a good source of information but two <laughs> that they're going to be uh this is very true uh, i get i get more time. rules wrong as you know oh, probably sure. anybody else but uh yeah i mean I think at the end of the day, I think com- from my experience going to events is that competitive competitive 40K gets a much worse um, stereotype than it deserves. Sure. Uh, the, the people that I generally play at tournaments are um, very nice. I have a lot of fun at those events. Um, and you know, bad games that I've had, like quote unquote bad games are very, very, very few and far between. Uh, If I have one bad game, I I had one year where I was doing tournaments and I probably played over the course of the year, well over a hundred games, just, just from like a majors, um, a major tournament standpoint, uh, majors and RTTs and things like that, like actual point counting tournament games i probably played somewhere over 100 games over the course of a year and that's actually a lot of games um i maybe had one if not if not that um in terms of bad games and you easily just you forget them it you know it happens and you realize it's happening and you just kind of go you know what i'll forget this game i'm going to go to the next game have a good time, you know, I'll forget this game. It won't be a big deal. Um, and then it's gone and then you forget it. Um, but I, I think the stuff with like people getting caught cheating, uh, the scrutiny people give, you know, it, on one side, I agree that people should be honest in the game and that, you know, that generally has done a pretty good job that people, people who cheat have been getting caught. Um, but I also think there's, it's kind of like seeded this negative attitude of people to try and scrutinize the game. Like it's a video game, you know, like it's like, it's a perfect game. Like 40 K is an imperfect game. It's full of flaws. It, It relies on people to play the game that who are inherently flawed. Like we're all flawed. Um, and we all make mistakes and we don't move that model, you know, you know, perfectly six inches maybe it was 6.1 or 6.2 inches and you know yeah maybe i got away with a little bit of extra movement there but in the grand scheme of things um you know are we trying to is that getting us towards having fun or you know does that really matter 
Um, or are we, you know, losing sight of the difference between someone being honest or dishonest um, and really kind of holding those people accountable? Because I think um, I, what I see is that there's this jump to conclusions that if someone gets a rule wrong, for example, that it's cheating um, and that we don't necessarily give people the benefit of the doubt to begin with, um, especially mm -hmm. people who are like very highly you know, quote unquote, ranked players. Uh, my opinion is that those players to deserve just the same amount of, um, I guess, credit that they could get something wrong as we would. Like just what we were talking about before where we, you know, competitive players jump army to army. Do you think that someone who jumps from Admech to Elks to Eldar to you know, Space Marines, you know, in the span of like each tournament they go to, which is usually each month, something like that, is going to, you know, remember every single little detail of something. Um, I, I don't think that happens or you run into so many different instances of rules where one conflicts with another. Um, and at the end of the day, I kind of, I give a little bit of a benefit of the doubt to them that maybe they messed up. Now that's the expectation I have is that they admit that, that they admit that, hey, you know what? I did get the rule wrong. It wasn't right. I didn't play it right. And, you know, maybe, I forfeit my points or I forfeit the, the tournament, something like that. I feel like that's all they need to do when something like that happens. But this is kind of how I got back to, you know, our original thing when I was saying, Hey, I think this guy's theory is right is because the thing that you never see competitive players do, especially at the, the, the upper levels that, you know, they get scrutinized for cheating. They never just come out and just say, look, I forfeit my points. I was wrong. Admit they were wrong. Um, and basically just say, look, I'm, I'm obviously not going to get this rule wrong again in the future. You know, you guys, you know, called me out on it, that kind of thing. Um, you know, that's kind of, you know, the things where it's like, Hey, they get a rule wrong or something like that. That that's kind of how I would expect that to get played. But mm -hmm. you know, you just don't, you don't see people kind of own up to that. So, yeah. You know, I mean, I think, I think part of that it becomes so visible to... that it gives it a, it gives it a bad rap, but at the end of the day, you just, you're, you're not going to run into those people in most, most events. And if you do, you're probably actually going to have a good game. Like I, you know, I, I've seen lots of top tournament players that I've played, you know, I've seen, I've even played um, and I've had a great game. Like I'll, I'll give you a good example. Jim Vessel, Jim Vessel is a very serious tournament player when you, when you run into him at an event. And I ran into him at um, Bay area open a few years ago um, and both of us had basically the same concept of a list where we like smite spammed with rubrics and all sorts of other stuff behind lots of bodies. Um, and, you know, despite the fact that Jim had the game locked up, he was still very serious about the game, but I still had a good time. And I think Jim still had a good time. And it was kind of one mm -hmm. of those things where it was like, I ran into him like turn around two and it was just completely random. And, you know, as fun as that was, I think the, the stigma would be that if I run into, I'm just using Jim as an example here, just for clarity. But if I run into, you know, these quote unquote, well-known competitive players, um, you know, you're probably going to have a pretty good game. And I would say that it doesn't, doesn't necessarily mean you have to win to have a very good game. I think you should just enjoy the experience you're having. Enjoy the fact that, Hey, you know what? I played that guy. Um, yeah. And you know, you try to have a good time with it and you just remember that, look, you know, you've got a bunch of other games that you're going to have to play and 
you know, at the end of the day, I don't think tournaments, all of this ranting I've, I've been going on here. Uh, I don't think tournaments deserve or competitive play deserves the stigma it gets because what I experience at events um, and what I see other people experience at events is a really good time. Like everybody that goes tends to stick and keep going to events. Um, and I think a lot of the negative stuff comes from people who read about other people going to events and kind of form, you know, these very loud opinions that they are pretty bad. Anyways. All right. My yeah. rant's over. I mean, I think there's definitely some truth to that. So just taking some examples out of my own sort of history with the game. So I've known a guy for about 15 years. He started playing 40 K back in jolly old first edition. And, uh, he played Dark Eldar. Uh, he took a break for like third and fourth edition because he got married, had kids, and then he finally got back in the game. He bought a new Dark Eldar army. We we're playing, and I'm playing my craft worlds. And like, we roll the missions, we get set up, and we're playing. And like, I am spanking him on points because, like, I've got the objective locked down. I like, I am keeping him away from anywhere he can like score on my characters, but he keeps on like going like after my units of aspect warriors. I'm like, okay, well, I mean, they're that's what they're there for. They're there to die. And like, we're about half of the game. It's like, okay, I win. Like, what, what do you mean? It's like I've got like all these points. You haven't scored anything. Like, oh well, I was here trying to capture all of your exorcs. Like, what? And. He just like laughed at me. It's like, oh yeah, I, I don't care about your stupid statue over there. I'm here for your exercise. Like, <laughs> sort of a, and I realized that he's been out. His spirit of the game was such that he didn't care what the book told him he was supposed to be doing. He was here on a raid because he's playing Dark Eldar, and that's what they do. I was like, we're here for uh, your exarchs. Okay. <laughs> like, my bad. <laughs> and um, this is a really, uh, the, the, the experience start, has stuck with me through all these years. Um, but that was a, a, honestly a, a real fun game after I figured out what was going on. Because um, then it turned into a rescue mission. <laughs> but um, <laughs> the, the other game, though, that, like, uh, so we talked about LVM. I went to LVO once. I honestly had a pretty terrible time. But the first game uh, I played at LVO was probably the best game I played there. And the thing that really sort of stuck with me is that, so they put the rank, the matchings up. I don't see my name because there's like yeah. 600 people. And so I flagged down an organizer. like, hey, what table am I at? And he like scrolls and scrolls and scrolls like, oh, you're playing this guy. Looks at me like he has no idea who I am, but he clearly knows who my opponent is. Like, oh, I'm sorry. Like, what do you mean? It's like, you're about to get tabled. I'm like, okay. Like, you didn't have to add that. I'm sure I was about to find that. That was kind of a dick thing to say. I'll be honest. I was like, okay, whatever. So I, I go and I have no idea who this guy I'm playing is. He's obviously somebody who has a presence online because he has his own camera rig set up to like record oh, the man. game. I'm playing my derpy advanced and shoot chaos space brain army, the Knights uh -huh. of Isha, and he's playing Dark Elder. 
uh, Prophets of Flesh. So they had, all had four pinball saves. They had the stupid Vexator mask. It was a whole big thing. I was like, okay, well, let's play some 40k. And first turn, he thought he was in trouble. Because he rolls forward, he shoots with his dark lances, and my defiler just shrugs it off. He shoots his haywire off of the um, his squad of Talos's, and it's just nothing works. And I advance up around him. I unfold his entire elite army with like my army. I'm like, okay, let's there we do go. this. And I bounce. <laughs> Literally, nothing goes through. It's like my turn was somehow worse than it. And it's just like, I don't know what I was expecting. It's like, I, I. I mean, you're about to win, but um, okay. <laughs> and he just like rolls over my poor Chaos Space Marines. And at the end of the whole thing, like we're talking like turn three, like my army's dead. The only thing I have left is a Horticulic Slimex that I summoned turn one and like a couple of trees that Horticulic Slimex summoned and my stupid um, what are the Chaos Space Marine uh, tech priest called um, Warpsmiths. Warpsmiths. I had a Warpsmith in the back who had been previously babysitting the defiler before it exploded. Mm-hmm. Um, and Slimex did his best, but he's just a demon. And so now we're turn four and five, and I just got this Warpsmith. I was like, okay, well, if I wanted to play for points. I would have this warp smith hang out on this objective in the back. And I'd score this many points, and he'd score this many points. And he's ready to do that. Like, he's, he has no reason to risk losing right. any models to me. I'm like, okay. Or I could have some fun. And so <laughs> this warp smith comes charging out of cover, advances across the table, and charges into... Uh, his uh, one of his homunculi like challenges him to single combat, kills him, and just standing there, I'm like, that one's next. <laughs> it's like what? It's like I'm gonna charge that homunculi next. I'm like what? And so it turned into he figured out that I don't care. I'm just here to have fun. And so he <laughs> put up with my shenanigans and just allowed this character to run around until he finally ran into an archon, and the archon just like. Snicker snacks. The tech marine is dead. I'm like, but that was a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> and so at the end of the game, like, I got completely trounced. I scored almost no points. It was like, if you look at it from like an outsider looking in, like if, if you just had the results, I had a bad game. But the if you look, actually watch the game, we both had a great time. And so I, I then went into that into one of the most miserable games of 40k I've ever played versus a Tau player, which I won. Like, I crushed him beneath the treads of my boots. But it was so terrible that I just, it's like, okay, I'm done. Like, I don't, I, he robbed all the joy of the first game from me. And yeah, so that's yeah. really just the, 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 the sort of, I experienced the two extremes of what 40K can be. Because I played one of the best players at that tournament. 
that that guy went on to be in like day three. He was in that group and had a great showing of turn. But we had a great time. But I played a guy that he was didn't even make the top half of the rankings. Right. But it's just because he went into the game from a just purely like I'm here to win. Right. Not uh, have, it, not have we, fun. We, we couldn't have fun like that. Right. So it wasn't a game anymore. It was a right. exercise in dice rolling. And I I think that that's just yeah. something to watch out for. If uh, is you making sure you don't fall into that, like losing sight of it being the game. All right, I think that's probably a good place to probably Didn't wrap up that questions? topic. We, we were did, to actually. We had some questions from our magister template, um, so I figured we'd we'd run through a few of them. I think we can get through pretty quick. Uh, so one of the questions was if there were any rumors. Uh, of the Infernal Master outside of the box set um, or you know are we going to have to keep like converting this guy or is there another master possession problem basically um, I think there were rumors that came out right before the Codex ship that or before Hexfire ship that there would be um, a combat patrol at some point and the um, Infernal Master would be in the combat patrol mm-hmm. um, but I, I mean at some point we're gonna get the, um, we're gonna get the infernal master either its own blister or something like that. We'll 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 get him out there. I'm sure. Um, my guess would be next year. I don't expect anything before the end of the year. Yeah, I I agree. I, I based off of what we were seeing, the combat patrol seems almost guaranteed. Um, yeah, but I don't know if or when they would release him by himself i mean the great thing is he's really easy to convert so it's not the end of the day if he doesn't come out like the master possessions was very similar like it wasn't the end (laughs) of the day if you didn't you know if he didn't come out there's ways to get around it like if you really need a model you can you know you can make one and you know it'll probably be more special to you than buying the 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 fully pre-made one so yeah um next question Predictions on how Sisters of Silence custodies will impact the way you make lists. Not at all. Yeah, I don't. I don't even know who they are. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for custodies, I mean, what, what would they do with custodies? They'd probably redu- remove the D3, like random nature of their weapons, which doesn't affect us. Uh, they might give them an extra wound since everyone else seems to be getting an extra wound. I will say uh, in games in games I used to play, um, <laughs> seventh. Let's go back to seventh edition for a moment oh and just talk about how how janky and dumb the game was in seventh edition. <laughs> um, one of the players I played with was running Eldar with um, Dark Reapers and Yanari, and then behind that he had. Um, he had Sisters of Silence in that because they were, I think it was allies. Yeah, they were of allies of convenience. Convenience, so you could do that. And uh, let me just say that that was one of the dumbest games I've ever. It was over so fast with my with my Thousand Sons and my you know with Magnus and everything else because it was pretty much real quick that I realized oh, I can't affect anything. And he's like, nope, you can't. And then I'm just going to sit behind this stuff and I'm just going to blast you off the table. Yep. Like, okay, that was fun. Um, but 
you know, I think, I think at the end of the day, our codex has come a long ways from that. And that the, how bad Sisters of Silence were for us back in the day is not how bad they are right now. Now that could change. Their rules could be really nasty, but I think at the end of the day, they're going to be, they might be troops that custodies can take. And I think that would be fine for them. I think they, they really struggle to be able to fill out their armies. And, you know, if you need to take more elite choices, great. But um, I don't like the thought of them, like just spamming them. Like, I hope that Sisters of Silence are not done in a way that, you know, players just spam tons of them just because they are kind of like a broken unit or just undercosted or whatever it is. Yeah. Like, I just hope that um, they, they are designed in a way that they can balance the army out. I'd love to see custodies just be able to take their tanks and their, um, you know, the, uh, pop a dreadnought in there. You know, have all the terminate, have a squad of terminators in there. I mean, just have a good plethora of stuff in there, and then have that be kind of like the optimal way to play the army. Um, kind of like where Thousand Suns is right now. I feel like you don't you don't play Thousand Suns just you can spam lots of rubrics, but I don't feel like that's like the optimal or the best way to play the army right now. I feel like you you. You could, you should be running terminators and other stuff. That, I mean, yeah. I guess I mean, that's that's my very subjective take. I get it, but yeah. If, if, so they have a couple ways they could do it, but the way I expect that they'll do it is that they'll limit Sisters of Silence units to one Sister of Silence unit per unit of custodies. Um, that way, you, mm-hmm. if you're taking Sisters, you have to like cultists. Take a, yeah, take a take a mix. Of them. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, honestly. Sisters of Silence aren't really a threat to Thousand Sons in their current incarnation. Uh, one of the things that was always talked about was when, even when they came out, was that, oh no, you have Sisters of Silence. Let me just shoot my AP3 bolters at them. Oh look, mm-hmm. no more Sisters of Silence. Um, they'd have to do something major to make the Sisters of Silence actually a threat to Thousand Sons. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not sure what form that would take. Yeah, I don't know either. I mean, it might be something like they reflect spells or they deny spells on a five up or like they just, they continue to be untargetable by stuff just like Calixus Assassin. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know, but that's that's kind of what they do, right? And and you can work around it. Like, mm-hmm. you know, like you said, you just slap a bunch of bolters at them and, you know, bye-bye Sisters to Silence. Yep. Uh, all right, uh, a, a good question here from uh, Quick Crook. Uh, do you have any predictions for the big FAQ? And both for a Thousand Suns and the wider meta. meta. So I expect that we'll get a, or I hope that we'll get an FAQ on that tricksy question you asked me earlier about the uh, <laughs> relics with the dilettante. Uh-huh. Because that seems like it could go either way. It's one of the few issues yeah. that I'm actually more permissive on than the rules as written guys, which is kind of weird. Yeah. Um, but let me think. Well, um, I mean, the obvious things I think everybody kind of knows are coming. Like when I say everybody knows are coming, 
most people know that there are some troublemakers right now in the game. Mm-hmm. Admech are one of them. Dark Elder are another one. Um, and you might even throw orcs in there as well. I suspect, my, my own prediction is that the troublemakers right now will get dealt with. I don't know how. Um, I, that's, I think that's impossible to predict. Um, there's plenty of ideas like, you know, some things going up in points, uh, maybe some things changing keywords and, you know, stuff like that. There's all sorts of ideas, but um, I'm sure that given the amount of time they've had to think over and, and look at this kind of stuff, that they'll have a good solution for it. And, you know, after that, after that's out, the game will, will settle down a little bit and it won't be such a, uh, you know, a, a have and have not tier or difference between kind of like your top tier and your, your rest of the pack. Yeah. Um, That'd be nice. Yeah. I think thousand suns, no matter what will, will make out pretty good. I don't think there are any units that we have that are bespoke to thousand suns that are inappropriately costed. Um, you know, like I was saying earlier that terminators, they're, they're expensive, but they're fantastic. And that's what you expect. Um, yeah. I, maybe, I think internally, Thousand Suns actually are very balanced. Yeah. Um, it's only whenever you start having them interact with some of these other new codexes that's like, you know. Yeah. Or you start talking <laughs> about stuff that are locked to relative stuff like rhinos, predators, mm-hmm. things like that. That's where that's where things get a little bit tough um, because it's not as easy to just say, look, you know, Thousand Suns get a point break on their predators, but Death Guard don't. Um, so, and then you know you start you start looking at point costs, you know, across different armies. They've set them up to do that kind of stuff, but I don't know that they're gonna they're gonna actually do that. Um, and I think there's some work that needs to be done with things like the predators and land raiders. Um, they 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 are still just in a spot where they're not great. Um, and they're, you know, maybe something happens with the meta where, you know, like the predator annihilator all of a sudden is, is an option for you, but you still got a lot of the forge world stuff that's in there. And I think the big thing that in my opinion is a big problem is the swinginess on a lot of the primary weapons on those things, like las cans, crack missiles, you know, stuff like that. That's the big problem where you compare them to things like Dark Lances. What makes them so great is a Dark Lance is what, like cheaper than a Laz Cannon and it's, you know, D3 plus three damage. Mm. And, you know, you're pretty much hitting and wounding just as good as anything else or as the Laz Cannon um, on a platform that moves much quicker and transports more. I mean, it's just stuff like that that just doesn't add up. Um, so I think I don't expect them to do anything rash with or or bold with things like last cannons and just all of a sudden say hey last cannons are d3 plus three because think about how many units in the game have last cannons that's yeah that's everything right so but but that's a problem and i think that's kind of what holds a lot of these units back um the land raider for that matter it's the cost i mean the, the price of a land raider is still I mean, I, I know, look, GW, you ran this great fluff article when you were putting these points out, like, we've reduced the Land Raider. Look how cheap it is now. And it's kind of like, 
yeah, uh, its value is still way lower. It's kind of like yeah. you can't you can't get the price low enough on this thing yet. I, I think and, the main and to problem. be fair, to be fair, I think some people are right in that they say, look, there's going to come a point where they just keep lowering the price of the Land Raider, and then all of a sudden it's going to snap, and the Land Raider is going to be really good, and it's going to be a problem because it's T8 two up. You have a five up in bowl in Thousand Suns. Like I can see that being a problem all of a sudden if that price all of a sudden crosses a point where it gets too low. But we're, I mean, we're not there yet. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, the I think the main problem with the Land Raider uh, is that the you're paying for a transport capacity that you have no real use for. So, okay, what are you going to put in the Land? You could like terminators. Well, you can only put five of them in there, and right. why not just teleport to terminators? Right. Um, or duplicity. So then, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so you can put rubrics in there, but well, you can put rubrics in a rhino, and the rhino will do the same job of transporting them as land raider without costing more than the rubrics do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, ultimately, at the end of the day you wind up with a thing that doesn't really have a use because if you just want a gun platform, well, you could take a Predator, but Predators are still just also not really valuable. They're also expensive. Yeah. yeah. So the Land Raider is a, kind of a poor fit for Thousand Suns as a, as a codex. Um, and I, I, the only Land Raider variants I would consider would be like the Land Raider Redeemer. And that's because it has the expanded cargo capacity. Mm-hmm. Um, even then, that's you'd have to have a very like particular like idea behind, like, I'm going to use this for this. Um, that I think is we just don't have a, a, an option in the codex that Make, can benefit from that type of transport. Yep. Yep. Um, saying enough right there. Yep. So we have one one other question that I think is going to be tough for us to answer in this podcast, but maybe this is something that we can think about for future ones. Um, and part of it is how do you build a list that does well against the biggest boogeyman, which is Grey Knights, Admac, Jukari, and Orcs? Well, I'll touch on it briefly in that I think with orcs, your answer is you have the minus one damage strat and orcs right now, their big thing is the buggies and a lot of their stuff is two damage, which you make one damage and there you go. You know, you've got pretty good solutions there. I, I talked about dark elder earlier and that I think I play aggressive there. Admech, I, I don't know what the answer is to Admech. I'll just say that. Um, the, the fact that they can just auto wound stuff, put so many wounds on our on our guys that we we don't have a way to really cope with that and eventually you have to come out and hold an objective and stand out in the open meanwhile their planes fly around so yeah i, I don't know that we have an answer to that yet so Admech, i actually yeah. think you should so with an army like Admech, with the way that they play much like jakari the only way to beat them is to play aggressive. Um, if you get stuck in that idea that, well, I'm going to try to reduce how much damage I take to as little as possible 
you're never going to come out of your corner and you're just going to yeah. lose to yeah. board control. Um, but the big thing about them is that their planes are very good. So obviously there's not a ton you can do about them other than just kill them. Um, but their main thing that the thing that everyone talks about is that they have these units of, I think it's Rangers that people use, um, that you buffer them to the nines and then they just melt entirely. Mm-hmm. Externally. Mm-hmm. Uh, so having some way to don't try to kill the Rangers because they're just going to get buffed and you're not going to be able to kill enough of them for it to matter. They'll just have multiple screen Rangers. It'd be the way that I would do it. Anyways. Um, instead, try to reduce the amount that your opponent can buff them. Uh, so for instance, there's going to be characters nearby with auras. You can snipe those psychic powers mm-hmm. or throw fast moving units at those units. Um, that's the only way you're going to be able to survive long enough to actually get to play the game. Um, whereas Grey Knights, well, honestly, Thousand Suns are ideally situated to deal with Grey Knights. Yeah. If I think it's. It. I think it's a matter of folks not being used to just being on an even keel from a psychic sure. power thing. And uh, I've actually had, I've had a pretty good record against a lot of our local Grey Knight players. And, and we have a couple pretty good ones um, that I've run into the nemesis dread Knight list a couple times, um, which is a, a pain to deal with. But um, last week when I played it, it was pretty much tabled by turn five. Um, I think if you get a Terminator squad that has the ability to get their stuff, um, you know, you can you can shoot Nemesis Dreadnoughts down quite a lot, but then you can also get your um, you get your Scarab Occult in there and hit first. I think you can neuter a lot of the output that you get from a from a Dreadnought mm-hmm. in close combat by just getting in there, and they don't have damage reduction, so your your Kopeshes are just gonna you know, chew through the guy. Make chunks out of them. Exactly. Um, I will yeah. say this. One thing I know players don't do enough of, it, they don't focus on using their cabal points for making their psychic actions undeniable. And that yeah. is very, ah. very critical against Grey Knights because that's yeah. what they're going to do. That, that's what Grey Knights is going to do. So you have to think about um, what you don't want denied against them. So you have to make sure that where you place your, your psychers is important. And then on top of that, when you go to do your psychic actions, you keep cabal points in your back pocket for making sure that, okay, when I mutate this objective, you can't deny it. Bam, done. Mm. You know, and that, that makes that kind of a moot, a moot thing. And you can just keep doing what you're used to doing with your list. Um, but, you know, in general, Grey Knights, um, their infantry die to our bolters uh, pretty, pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um you know the 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 really cool thing is uh you have a stratagem where you know if you um if you're going to walk with your rubric somewhere uh you can you know pop a command point where you can walk and then warp time them and then you know you can use a stratagem and say hey they remain stationary and you can get your full rapid fire you know outside of 12 inches with them that kind of thing um i do like putting 
warp time on the rubrics just from a movement standpoint because you can jump and set yourself up for the next turn and then literally one run from one objective to the next objective that way um maybe even make a charge uh, but i mean outside of that the, the dread knights don't have damage reduction so you're so a demon prince works really good against them too yeah um, or a, or a mutilith vortex beast on top of that you, you go into combat with it he actually does a pretty good job um you just have to think about their invuln saves. That's kind of the big thing. I think that most of them have a four-up invuln, uh, but mm. I mean, you can death hex it. Uh, but unless you've got what they have a two-up four-up or a three-up four-up, something like that, and uh, two-up four. Yeah, so you really don't need death hex unless you've got your demon prince with a with a sword, and then you're getting a five-up save against it, right? Mm -hmm. So you know that's 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 kind of the thing to think about is uh take take their invuln away um you know take what makes them good away um you know and that that generally will uh will help you out a lot and just just play primaries a lot of times gray knights are going to struggle as much as we do in terms of holding of a holding an objective and i don't see a lot of gray knight players taking their um their terminators at all so yeah all, all right. right am i forgetting anything mike You'd best not be. Because I think we forgot it last time. And I think we? what we forgot was that Magnus did nothing wrong. I ah, don't know how we forgot course. that, but... There's no way we so, I mean... Magnus, he didn't do anything wrong. He did. I mean... I don't know how else to put that. He just... He didn't do anything wrong. Yep. Magnus did nothing wrong.